Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I'm your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and politics and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live and work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings County. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. We're taking a slight turn with this episode. Our guest tonight is Larry Wolf, movie critic and lecturer, who will speak to us about two movies concerning politics and government. Mr. Smith goes to Washington and all through the night, as well as their connection to Long Island and New York in general. This is a not-to-be-missed fun episode. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Larry's credentials and contact information. Also, please keep in mind that we will not be providing any legal advice to specific questions. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, could you please tell our listeners about yourself? Well, I'm a uh, Long Island boy. Uh, born and raised in uh, Nassau County, currently live in Suffolk County. With tonight's topic, I began watching movies at a very early age, as probably many of your listeners did, on the one black and white TV set in the house. Gagman, Ghouls, and Gangsters were my first loves. And uh, as I got a little older, I learned to appreciate film noir and mysteries and the occasional musical. I began reading a lot about Hollywood celebrities. I began collecting movie memorabilia. And about 10 years ago, uh, after assisting one of my friends uh, in Massapequa Park, the movie man, I decided that I should go out and share my love and enthusiasm about films with the uh, public. And that's what I've been doing for approximately the last 10 years. Well, and we actually met at a presentation at the West Hempstead Public Library, which was excellent. So oh, thank you. I'm sure tonight's uh, episode will be just as good. Let's start with All Through the Night. To our listeners, if you have not yet seen this movie, please rent it from your library or see it on YouTube before you listen to this discussion. And with that caveat, Larry, what is the plot of the movie? Well, it's uh, basically it, the movie was made just prior to, uh, to our entry into World War II, and the movie was released just at that time. Uh, and it is uh, concerns a bunch of gangsters in New York City, Damon Runyon-esque type gangsters, who tangle with uh, Nazis. As war had not been declared, the police and politicians couldn't do anything, but when the Nazis uh, stick their hand in the gangsters' territory and start rubbing out people, to use 1941 lingo, Humphrey Bogart and company get involved. Was this movie based in any way on uh, what was happening out on Long Island with the Bund and the Nazi rallies in Yapank? In a way, with Long Island, yes. It really was more of New York City. Uh, in, in the film, and it's quite a different Humphrey Bogart film. It's a mix of many genres, uh, film noir, mystery, thriller, also a lot of jokes, and even a touch of slapstick now and again. All of the people in the film have Irish names. Uh, for instance, Humphrey Bogart, uh, his character is Gloves Donahue. In real life, since we had not entered World War II yet, the Nazis were holding rallies both in New York City and out on Long Island. They would have huge rallies in the old Madison Square Garden. They were displaying big pictures of George Washington side by side with Adolf Hitler, if you can imagine such a thing, American flags and Nazi flags marching around Madison Square Garden, zig-heiling and uh, parading. This was also going on in Yapank, New, New York. 
Uh, the film is set in New York City, but it was the same kind of feeling. If you look at magazines at the time, Life magazines, Look magazines, you can see we were going to enter the war. We just could not stand by and watch these horrible people destroy Western civilization. What was happening is, since we were not yet in the war, the American Nazis had every right to march around and spout their diatribes. What happened in New York City, I'll address that first, is that this film is actually based on not absolute fact, but what was happening is that when the Nazis would have their Bund meetings, Jewish gangsters in New York City would go in and use lingo at the time, basically bust their heads. They would break up the, the, the Bund meetings and the police basically stepped aside and let them do it. They could not get involved. But the Jewish gangsters knew what was going on in Europe, what was beginning to, to go on in, in Europe, 1939-1940. But as you said, the, um, the Jewish gangsters were replaced in this movie by Irish gangsters. Yes. So does that mean that New York City and Long Island were more hospitable to the Irish than the Jews pre-World War II? Or, or why do you think the Irish were chosen? Well, uh, by, by that time, the Irish had assimilated into society. It's interesting. All but one of the major film studios were owned and run by immigrants, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, uh, whether it was U Universal or MGM, or in this case, Warner Brothers. The Warners themselves came from Russia in an area that is now part of Poland. But being Jewish in the 1940s was still not socially acceptable. I always go back to the old expression, how would it play in Peoria? And Jewish gangsters beating up Nazis, oh, there was still a lot of anti-Semitism much of it was unspoken, but it still existed. So Irish gangsters were much more palatable in taking on the Germans. And I read in doing some research for this program that at the this, this same time as this movie, one in seven males in Suffolk County belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. Was the issue of the KKK addressed here at all, or it really was focused more on the external threat of German Nazi forces? That is it. It, it, it was focused more on the external threat of the Nazis. Uh, Warner Brothers was the only studio that really, up until the outbreak of the war, uh, addressed this. Jack Warner was very proud of being Jewish. And he actually, Warner Brothers came out with a movie in 1939 called Confessions of a Nazi Spy, starring Edward G. Robinson. It was a documentary-style film, very hard-hitting, showing the Nazis as trying to undermine us through their infiltration into military installations, production factories, things of that, that nature. So Warner was the first, really, to, to take a hand in showing the Nazis for what they were. That is why films like Confessions of a Nazi Spy all and, and All Through the Night were made. All Through the Night is actually a part of a, a two-part film. It's a companion piece to a film called Underground that was made earlier in the year. A straight drama, not successful, and it showed the Nazis in, in Europe. Not, of course, what we know today, but what Hollywood knew at the time. Now, to go out to Suffolk County, 1938, 1939, 1940, there was Camp Siegfried was located out in Yapank, New York. And Suffolk County at that time was basically sticks. It was potato farms, you know, no wineries yet or anything like that. And a very small population. The KKK was burning crosses on Catholic churches, things of that nature. Well, Camp Siegfried operated out in Yapank, New York, as I said. And when they had their summer rallies, 
if you can imagine this, at the time, 40,000 people would come out to Yapank. Many of them dressed in stormtrooper outfits, Hitler saluting, parading, marching. They would come, the Long Island Railroad actually scheduled special extra trains to transport the people out there because not everyone had cars, not like today. These rallies were really in, incredible for the time. It was a German community that lived there, and then they got all these visitors for this summer fun fest, you, you might say. They even went so far as to name local streets after na- uh, some of the Nazi hierarchy. I presume those names have changed. Yes, there is no longer Adolf Hitler Way or Hermann Goering Boulevard. Um, but many of the roads out there it still have German names, and there's still an enclave out there called German Gardens. So there's still a heavy German population out there. But yes, at the outbreak of, of the war, the FBI clamped down. Uh, they caught many, but not all, many of the spies and the fifth columnists. Uh, that were operating in New York City, Long Island, and throughout the country. Wow. Let me ask you, this is certainly not one of Humphrey Bogart's most famous movies we can think of. Casablanca or The Maltese Falcon, there are other movies. How did this movie do commercially, and what was the reaction from the public? Was it commercially successful? Yes, it it was. It was made for approximately $640,000. That was the budget. And the domestic and international gross was almost $2 million. So it made back three times its original cost. So so why don't you think that we talk about this movie when we talk about Humphrey Bogart? It is not one of his more prominent movies. Probably because it's against type. Bogart at this time was not yet the screen lover, the leading man that we know him as. He had made The Maltese Falcon. And as Sam Spade, it was a great film, wonderful film, mystery. And what happened was he made this film after The Maltese Falcon, but before Casablanca. If you watch Underground all through the night in Casablanca, it has many of the same cast. And a lot of them, particularly in Casablanca, were people that fled the Nazis. Correct. Yes, okay. Anything else you want to say about this movie before we move on? I would say that it is a lot of fun. Uh, If you have a chance to see Humphrey Bogart in a very unusual role with a supporting cast that is fabulous, William Demarest, a thin Jackie Gleason, Phil Silvis with hair, Wallace Ford, Barton McLean, from up and down, the film is funny, and it also tackles a very serious topic, which was why Warners knew that after the war broke out, they really couldn't make another film like like this. So I would advise your audience, if you get a chance, see it. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, let's move on to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, sure. movie made in 1939, truly an idealistic movie about government, although not specifically about Long Island or New York. I think its lessons apply to the political situation everywhere in this country today. If you haven't seen this movie, listeners, please rent it from your library or see it on YouTube before listening because we will be discussing uh, the plot. So can you tell us, Larry, please, about the plot of uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Oh, sure. Basically, what happens is a United States senator passes away, and the governor of the unnamed state is to select someone to fill the seat. Claude Rains plays the uh, senior senator from this state, which happens to be uh, in the unpublished book, The Gentleman from Montana. We know he's from Montana. When you watch the film, he's obviously not from New York or California or, or, or New Jersey or Illinois. Jimmy Stewart is named to be the senator, and he is to basically just do what Claude Rains says. As Claude Rains, who is also in Casablanca. 
on Claude Rains, who will, yes, who will soon be in Casablanca, a okay. wonderful actor, wonderful actor. And what happens is Jimmy Stewart basically has to follow what Claude Rains wants, and the press kind of sets him right. Uh, he goes in wide-eyed. Uh, the film, it's a, it's a very patriotic film. When you see the opening montage and you hear clips of great American standard songs, uh, including Yankee Doodle Dandy and things like that, with an overview. It's almost a travelogue of Washington in the uh, in, in the first part of, of the film. You get a very great patriotic feeling. And Jimmy Stewart, by notification of the press, finds out that he's not expected to do anything, just kind of follow along, keep the status quo, and do what Claude Rains, unknowingly for him, a corrupt Claude Rains, and a political establishment behind him, just do what they say and everything will be okay. I just want to ask you about your point with the patriotic music and the uh, undertones, and yet, in this movie, I believe that there is no discussion of what is going on in the world in terms of pre-Nazi movement or other political issues. And in fact, I know we've discussed that there is no sense of Republican versus Democrat. So what is the reason that, in fact, Frank Capra, who is the director, that he didn't use this opportunity to express his viewpoint in the world? Well, Capra didn't want to get too much of the current time. That's why he doesn't go into the Depression and the oncoming war. This this film was released in 1939. Capra wasn't sure that he wanted to make this film. He felt at first he started to get in over his head. And he thought, well, how can I make a film about a hayseed senator with the world exploding? So he purposely stayed away from the politics of the moment, kind of like Laurel and Hardy comedies. Yes, the cars are dated and the clothes are dated, but their personas are timeless. And that's kind of what Capra did here. If you take away the hats and the wide lapels on the suits, the people are, are pretty much, you can, you can interchange them with the uh, people of today. Okay, well, I was reading about Frank Capra, the director of this movie. He also directed Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, one of my favorite movies. It happened one night with Clark Gable, Meet John Doe with Gary Cooper, and many other famous movies. So in advance of of this recording, I read that Capra's political views were actually quite on display in his movies, which promoted and celebrated the spirit of American individualism, kind of like the Libertarian Party. However, he was a conservative Republican, and he rallied against Franklin D. Roosevelt during his tenure as governor of New York and opposed his presidency, FDR's presidency, during the years of the Depression. Capra stood against government intervention during the national economic crisis and in later years became a self-described pacifist, very critical of the Vietnam War. So how do we see Frank Capra's political views in this movie about a very naive, novice congressman who goes to Washington to make a difference? Well, Capra doesn't get into Republican and, and Democrat. You never hear either word uttered during the film. What Capra showed here, in, in my opinion, was how one man could make a difference. When you watch the film, in the early part of the film, you will see Jimmy Stewart is cowed by the establishment. Everyone, from Gene Arthur to Edward Arnold, everyone is telling him, sit down, listen to me. And he dutifully does so. What happens is once he decides to take action, and this was a Capra theme, much as Hitchcock always had the man wrongly accused theme, 
Camper's theme was one man against the unruly mob. And once Jimmy Stewart decides to stand up in the Senate and conduct his filibuster, now we see him standing tall. Now you see the visual aspect of Stewart at six foot three, gangly Jimmy, string bean as he was known, stand up to the mob and the crooked politicians and exposing the corruption. That was, in my opinion, that that's what Capra was getting across, that one man can make a difference. I think that's why it's such a timeless film today, mm-hmm. because you really get a good happy feeling say wow isn't that wonderful what if we had a person like that today that could rip the scab off of everything that's going on in washington pick up the rocks and show all those little insects that are scurrying around and that's what capra does with jimmy stewart what i find interesting as well is that harry carey who does not have a lot of lines in it a great western star is the president of the senate and when we watch this film we're really watching it through his eyes because he's the one that reacts. He'll make his silent oohs and ahs or arches, eyebrows, or smile. And that's what we're doing. So Harry Carey is, is our eyes through this. And we are watching ourselves give approval to what Jimmy Stewart is, is doing and standing up for what is, what is right. A, a okay. difficult thing to do. Very difficult to do. And uh, we don't see it much in action. No. How did the public react and receive this movie. The public really responded to it. The general public did. I'll, I'll tell you about the politicians in just a minute. The, the public loved it. The movie had a budget of approximately $1.5 million. Capra did amazing camera work on it, and he reconstructed a replica of the United States Senate at two-thirds scale. That's amazing just to, to see in the film. The film grossed $9 million. At that time. At that, that time. That was a lot of money. Yes. So Capra did very, very well with it. The politicians were not so happy with this film. <laughs> uh, unsurprisingly. Unsurprisingly. They really haven't changed. Many of the senators, well, let me go go back for, for just a minute. Capra had a special screening, and there was a special Washington newspaper that was made, kind of a political paper for, for the politicians, and Capra got on the front page of it and big headlines and they had a special screening for all of the politicians in Washington to come and see this film. It's not showing politicians or their cohorts in a very positive light most of the time. About two-thirds of the way through the film, the grumbling starts and the politicians start yelling at the screen and about a third of them got up and walked out. One of the uh, one newspaper editor at the party afterwards, and Frank Capra showed news, a newspaper editor as being drunk. Well, a drunk newspaper editor took a swing at Frank Capra because he didn't like Capra showing drunk newspaper editors on the screen. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so he had his hands full. The politicians themselves started to rail against the film. Some, believe it or not, in this country wanted to stifle the film's freedom of speech. They wanted to encourage theater owners not to show this film. Joseph Kennedy, that Joseph the Kennedy. The father. The father, our ambassador to England. Great, to Yes, to England, felt that it would give the fascists an upper hand into the politics of the United States, and he discouraged it being shown at, at all. He later changed his, his mind. Uh, there was one senator 
who was very lucky that they didn't use his words on the advertisement for the film itself, because he said it shows the United States Senate to be the greatest collection of nincompoops as shown on, <laughs> on, on film. Judge for yourself how that relates today. Right. The more, the more things change, the more they remain they the, the same. same. This has been a wonderful program, Larry. We could go on and on, but we need to stop. So I just want to say to our listeners, there is a lot of movie production going on in Nassau, Suffolk counties, mm-hmm. New York City, and New York State. Please check out our show notes for links to those websites. And that's it for the 11th episode. Thank you so much, Larry, for coming on this very very interesting movie episode. If you want to find out more about Larry, his credentials, and perhaps to book him for your next event, please see the show notes for his contact information. To our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us while you're there. If you have suggestions for other topics to be covered on this podcast, please let us know. The LI Law Podcast strives to educate and entertain you about everything Long Island. Thanks for listening.